Since the beginning of the pandemic, the American Medical Association has led the fight against COVID-19. As the nation copes with the effects of the crisis, we continue to offer tireless advocacy and expert resources. I'm Todd Unger, and this is AMA Moving Medicine, a podcast from the American Medical Association. This episode is part of an ongoing series featuring critical insights from the physicians and healthcare professionals on the front lines of the pandemic. Today, we'll be discussing the nation's drug overdose epidemic and COVID-19. I'm joined today by Dr. Patrice Harris, AMA's immediate past president, as well as a psychiatrist and former public health director in Atlanta. Dr. Harris is also the chair of the AMA Opioid Task Force. Dr. Charles Reznikoff, who works in addiction medicine and internal medicine at Hennepin Healthcare and is an associate professor of medicine at the University of Minnesota in Minneapolis. Dr. Reznikoff also represents the American College of Physicians on the AMA Pain Care Task Force. And Dr. Stephen Taylor, ex-officio member on the board of directors of the American Society of Addiction Medicine or ASAM, as well as an ASAM delegate to the AMA House of Delegates. Dr. Taylor is also the medical director of the Players Assistant Assistance and Anti-Drug Program of the National Basketball Association and the National Basketball Players Association, as well as Chief Medical Officer of the Behavioral Health Division of Pathway Healthcare in Birmingham, Alabama. I'm Todd Unger, AMA's Chief Experience Officer in Chicago. Uh, Dr. Harris, the AMA Opioid Task Force recently published its 2020 Drug Overdose Report. Uh, What does the report tell us about the current state of the nation's drug overdose epidemic? Todd, I think the most critical and top-line message is that the epidemic has grown more deadly. The overdoses and deaths are now fueled by illicitly manufactured fentanyl, methamphetamine, cocaine, and heroin. And I think it's also important to note uh, that the number of opioid prescriptions has decreased uh, 37%, in fact, from 2014 to 2019. So we really need to broaden our focus when it comes to overdoses and not just focus on opioids because we see them uh, driven by other substances now. Dr. Reznikov? Uh, yeah, it was quite interesting information in that report. And you know, I think we all really saw that the rise of opioid prescriptions was linked to the rise of opioid addictions and death, but it doesn't necessarily necessarily follow that lowering opioid prescription reverses all the damage that was done. So, you know, an addiction once formed isn't, you know, isn't uh, cured by lowering the opioid prescription. And in fact, some ways um, people are having their opioids discontinued abruptly, might even put them at risk of harm. So the lowering opioids is a good thing but it's not enough to treat the people affected by opioid addiction. Dr. Taylor? And, and in fact, I think the, the point that that leads us to understand is that um, the issue isn't so much an opioid epidemic as really an epidemic of the disease of addiction, uh, which is not a drug-specific disease. And, and hence, uh, we see that there's not just a problem with opioids, but in fact, right on the heels of that, we see a problem with methamphetamine and a resurgence of cocaine use. And of course, those aren't happening uh, in a vacuum either. And so we're seeing now that the overdose deaths are very often happening with people who've been using methamphetamine and then have had uh, their drug that has been laced with fentanyl. 
and it's the synthetic uh, opioids like fentanyl and its analogs that are causing many of the deaths. So what that tells us is that what we really need to focus on is how do we get people treatment for addiction, for the disease of addiction in an ongoing way, treating this chronic um, potentially relapsing disease uh, according to the model that is necessary uh, for providing adequate treatment for, for people who have that disease. Uh, Dr. Harris, uh, what have physicians been doing to decrease drug-related deaths, and are those efforts working? Well, Todd, uh, they are, and I uh, hope the viewers recall that the AMA Board of Trustees convened the Opioid Task Force in 2014 to, first of all, amplify efforts already underway by the physician community to address the opioid epidemic, but also uh, to further coordinate and collaborate our efforts. And uh, based on our initial recommendations, physicians have uh, registered for PDMPs, those state uh, database programs. Physicians have increased and enhanced our education around pain and around substance use disorders. And physicians have been working in partnership with others to reduce the stigma, not only around the diagnosis of a substance use disorder, but also help seeking, uh, seeking treatment. And I could not agree more. Again, we convene this task force for a specific focus, but it is absolutely critical for us to look at the issue of substance use disorders in total and not, and I mean the royal we, not just physicians, and not just focus on one uh, particular substance or drug. Dr. Taylor? I'll, I'll uh, piggyback on that because when um, when we think of the, the AMA and the others uh, with whom the AMA has worked, uh, we in ASAM are among those others. I mean, we are also physicians, of course, but we've uh, been very proud to partner with the AMA, um, working on programs that have uh, provided um, substance use treatment and some of the related um, the social supports and teaching physicians and actually reimbursing physicians for providing the kinds of social supports that are needed to, to take care properly of patients who have substance use disorder. We have to remember that, that addiction is a sort of a multifocal disease. It's, it's, it's clearly a medical disease, but it's impacted by so many factors in the society that are, are um, contributing to this, to this condition, including um, unfair access to housing and inadequate access to, uh, edu to quality education and to jobs. And all of that is part of what uh, leads to people having difficulties that that will very often contribute to substance use disorder. And and I may I'll go on and say, given the time that we're in, it's worth noting that race comes into play here as well, because these very same factors that contribute to people of any color or any ethnicity developing a substance use disorder are also the factors that we see that disproportionately affect people in the African-American community. And so um, these, uh, the fact that we are working together with the AMA to help physicians to, to have an impact uh, on these uh, various uh, factors uh, and, and on patients affected by these various factors, I think is very important. Yeah, I'm sorry, sorry about that. I do uh, have to also uh, thank uh, ASAM for their partnership and something that we probably haven't talked about enough, but the AMA and ASAM worked on a new payment model 
uh, for these services. You know, if we are going to address uh, globally uh, treatments and making sure that treatments are available uh, for those who have substance use disorder, we are going to have to address the problem from soup to nuts, uh, if you will. And part of that is addressing head on issues around physician uh, reimbursement and reimbursement for other services that uh, may be required um, as part of treatment for substance use disorder. Yeah, I, I really appreciate that and, and AMA's advocacy around uh, reimburse, reimbursement reform has been critical and I think is, is, has been really important. I, th I think we're, especially now with COVID-19, every healthcare institution in the country is under financial stress and every health in care institution in the country is looking at what they need to cut, what they can cut, how they can make the budget work and addiction programs are being cut. And it feels a little, I'm from Minnesota, so I'll use an analogy. It feels like taking your snow tires off as winter approaches. Uh, I'm really worried about addiction services being cut, but the, we need payment reform and we need our healthcare institutions and state and federal level to commit to this because COVID-19, believe it or not, will end someday. But complex pain and addiction, those will exist as long as human beings walk on this earth. And so we need, we need to have a long-term commitment to treating those diseases. Um, the one other thing I would say is, is the, the AMA overdose um, report showed 70,000 overdose deaths last year, which sounds awful. But there are 2.5 million Americans living with opioid addiction, and that's just opioid addiction. That means only 3% um, died last year. There's 97% are, are, are still walking around untreated, needing treatment, needing care. And we really need to mobilize to give best care to that 97% of people who st still lived, still living. 2.5 million Americans need help. And so we got a lot of work to do. Dr. Reznikov, can you talk a little bit about uh, naloxone's role, role in that uh, rate that you just mentioned? Yeah, well, I mean, it, to dovetail to the last point, the report showed 1 million naloxone kits were administered last year, which is amazing. But there are 2.5 million Americans at risk of overdose death. And so we've come a long way with naloxone, but we need to keep going and, uh, and extend that. Um, if, you, if a provider gives 10 naloxone kits out to people with addiction, one of them is used to save a life. So that's a number needed to treat of 10. That is excellent by medical standards. So this is a very effective tool at saving a life, but it doesn't treat the addiction and it doesn't prevent the next overdose. So it's a bridge uh, to, to buy time to get the person into treat, proper treatment. So that said, naloxone is a, has been a great advance for us, but it, it, it's not enough and it's only a bridge. Uh, so it's a, it, it's a good it's a good thing. I don't want to diminish its benefit, but uh, but it, it's only the start. You know, another way to look at naloxone is that it is a, a type of tertiary prevention, in a sense. You know, once a person's already has once a person already has the illness of addiction, uh, what we then use naloxone to do is to prevent the um, most awful outcome of addiction, namely uh, potentially deadly overdose. Um, and, and, and I think that the, when we're looking at preventing overdose, one of the things that we also need to focus on is the uh, population of folks who are incarcerated. Because we know that a person who is 
um, returning to the community after having been incarcerated is 129 times more likely to suffer an overdose than the general population. So when, when we talk about uh, uses of naloxone and how that can be used effectively, one of the key populations that you would want to target are those folks who are le leaving incarceration, coming back into the community, because we know that's a high risk uh, population. And with any prevention intervention, you, you want to target those people who are at greatest risk. And so I feel as though that's something we need to focus on is those folks who are uh, involved in the criminal justice system, not just when they are departing um, the criminal justice system, but also while they're in treatment. It's also a very important um, thing to focus on to, to increase the access of patients who are in incarcerated to be able to to access physicians and to access care uh, and and to be treated while they are still in treatment um, we, we know that that will decrease the chances of recidivism the chances of relapse um, after they after they um, uh, return to the community this is such a good point and and above that it's just a human right to receive treatment for medical condition whether you're incarcerated or not and and the, we we will look back on these days where we incarcerated people and then denied them treatment for an addiction as as a real failing of our system and a real um, abrogation of their civil rights dr harris based on the report what else needs to be done uh, to end this epidemic well, certainly we need all uh, partners engaged and involved, and the AMA um, has been um, urging uh, that the payer community uh, engage in this. And certainly we want to make sure that all uh, arbitrary barriers, all barriers are eliminated to evidence-based uh, pain care. And we know one of those barriers is prior authorization. We've seen some movement on that in the states, but we need all insurers and all uh, states to uh, look at uh, whether or not there are these barriers of prior authorization. The other issue is around parity. And we urge all payers, all of the insurers to uh, do an internal audit. Uh, we certainly want the insurance uh, commissioners at the state to do one as well, but um, uh, the payers can start by doing an internal audit to make sure that they are complying, complying with any federal or uh, state uh, parity laws. And I, I would say meaningful, uh, meaningfully comply, right? Because um, we have so often uh, sometimes compliance, I call checkbox compliance. It's the bare uh, minimum and it ultimately doesn't uh, get the best care to patients so they could have the best outcome. So we really want that compliance to be meaningful. And yet another way that I, I, I just can't <laughs> miss this opportunity to point out, yet another way in which we at ASAM have been privileged uh, and pleased to partner with the AMA uh, is around this whole issue of, of uh, third-party payers. Uh, because in fact, we have been able to work with the AMA to, and, and I'll give the specific case in the state of Colorado, to get the um, insurers there to adopt the ASAM criteria for assessing the patient's um, medical necessity and, and um, the level of care that patients require. And we know if left to their own devices um, to uh, do that, uh, you know, per 
third-party payers insurers will very often just do what works best for the bottom line. But because we've been able to work with the AMA in Colorado to get the um, a law passed that requires most third-party payers to um, use the ASAM criteria, we've now got a system in place there, at least in that state, and this is certainly something that can be replicated elsewhere, uh, wherein patients' needs are what determines the level of care that they receive uh, when they are, are um, getting addiction treatment. So that's an example of a, a very specific way in which we've been able to work well uh, with the AMA to, um, to get insurers to, to do what's really going to benefit patients uh, in terms of getting them treatment for this disease. Yeah, Dr. Dr. Harris made a reference to pain treatment as well, and I just wanted to call that out. Um, the AMA has been really out front advocating for multidisciplinary pain teams, and that you know, and that that's really the future of treating pain. Unfortunately, I worry that with the financial stress that the healthcare system's under, uh, you know, they're looking at who do we who do we furlough the cardiologist or the acupuncturist, and they're making these false choices where. Um, really important members of the multidisciplinary pain team and safe, appropriate treatment of pain is being cut for financial reasons. So I, I worry that just as we're starting to establish our multidisciplinary pain teams, they're going to be cored out by the financial stresses we're facing. Um, so I, I, I do think it's important to double down on the, uh, the multidisciplinary, not just opioids, every treatment we can we can offer patients who are suffering in pain to get them feeling better living better functioning better um we gotta we gotta keep our focus on that um because we were just sort of getting some momentum and i and i think that's a really integral part of this as well well thank you so much uh, dr harris dr reznikoff and dr taylor uh, for being here today for sharing your perspectives and for all of your important work uh, that's it for today's COVID 19 update for additional information on the AMA Opioid Task Force 2020 Drug Overdose Report, visit end-overdose-epidemic.org. For updated resources on COVID-19, go to ama-assn.org COVID-19. Thanks for joining us today, and please take care. This content was originally published as part of AMA's COVID-19 daily video updates. Find the latest at ama-assn.org slash COVID update. I'm Todd Unger, and this is AMA Moving Medicine, a podcast from the American Medical Association. You can also subscribe to other great AMA podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher, or visit ama-assn.org slash podcasts. Thank you for listening.